Welcome to another edition of Ecumenical Musings, where we look at developments in the ecumenical world in Australia and in other parts of the world. I'm Richard Tewton. In this episode, we're going to focus on the effect of three words. The words themselves can be seen as inoffensive on their own. They were originally brought together to elucidate a theological position. But as we will see in the end, they shook the church of the period where they were first used to breaking point. This break or fracture of the unity of the church at that time continues through to the present day. Some of you may be familiar with the history of the development of what we call the Nicene Creed. The creed is used by many churches during Sunday worship or occasionally during special services. A creed is basically a statement of faith and belief. It sets out what individual Christians and the church at large understands about God, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. In the early years and centuries of the church, when candidates were baptised, they were expected to confess their personal belief in the presence of the whole congregation. The earliest confessions were short and simple, such as, Jesus is Lord, or I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. From these earliest confessions came a more developed statement that is now called the Apostles' Creed. It has a very simple and direct structure and has been used constantly in worship services by various denominations. As the saying goes, from little things, big things grow. This is definitely the case when it comes to creeds. Beginning its life in 381 CE, what we now call the Nicene Creed began its life and as time went on became further refined and incorporated into worship on a regular basis. Why have such a creed in the first place? Just as the candidate for baptism was required to state his or her profession of faith, there arose the need, in some bishops' eyes, for a regular profession during the Eucharist. The Nicene Creed, which is more detailed in its confession than the Apostles' Creed, has been the one most commonly used by many churches down to the present time. Some churches, such as the Anglican and Roman Catholic churches, require the Creed to be recited each Sunday. It is then an important part of liturgical life. So what about the three words I referred to earlier? When I began studying theology and church history, the story, or should I say the continuing story of these three words, was quite prominent. So what are the words that have become such a cause celebrate? They are, and the Son. They are called the Filioque Clause. They are inserted into the Nicene Creed from about the 5th or 6th century CE, to describe the procession of the Holy Spirit as proceeding from the Father and the Son, rather than, as described in the original text of the Creed, as proceeding from the Father alone. In some ways, it was an attempt to further define the procession of the Spirit within the Trinity. One has to be careful in saying this because there will always be those who have different views on this. We could say that it was developed and inserted with the best of intentions. After all, a confession of faith that really defines a Christian's belief about God is something to aim for. It wasn't though as simple as that. For a start, many did question the doctrine behind the use of the words and the Son. There was the thought that the extra procession of the Spirit from the Son was unnecessary. 
I may be stating this a little too simply, but this in essence describes some of the situation. I say some because there was not just one disagreement when it comes to the filioque clause. There are several. They include disagreement over the term itself, disagreement about the orthodoxy of the doctrine of the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son, disagreement about the legitimacy of inserting the term into the Nicene Creed, or to give it its full title, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. Nicene will do because the other title is a bit too cumbersome to get our teeth around the pronunciation. The last disagreement I'm going to mention is the one about the authority of the Pope to define the orthodoxy of the doctrine or to insert the term into the creed itself. Like many disagreements, they've all become linked, especially in respect to who should authorise such a doctrine or how should it be implemented across the Church. A lot has been written on this topic from both the Western theological traditions and the Orthodox, both Eastern and Oriental. This shows how important it was at the time, and in some cases still is, within church relations today. Though the controversy raged for some time, the big break between the Eastern and Western traditions came in the 11th century CE. By this time, the Filioque Clause had been gaining wider use in the liturgy of Roman Catholic churches for about 300 years. In 1014, it was used for the first time in the liturgy of the Mass used in Rome. The spread of the Filioque Clause's use, as part of the Nicene Creed, continued at a steady pace within the Roman Catholic churches, to the point that in 1274, when, at a council held in Lyon in France, the doctrine was formally defined. Since then, the Nicene Creed has rarely been said without the clause being used. Within the Orthodox churches, it was a different story. The Filioque Clause has never been used or accepted in its liturgies. The definition of the clause that was accepted by the Council of Lyon has also never been accepted. The main reason is that the Orthodox churches were not represented at the Council, nor were they included in the discussions that led to its acceptance. The Orthodox patriarchs objected to the way in which the Pope, who in their eyes, had unilaterally decided that the Filioque should be used in the Nicene Creed, as if he was the head of the whole church, not just one part of it. So as well as theological objections, there were also issues of decision-making and power. Who had the power to make such fundamental doctrinal changes in the church? Ecumenical councils had met within the church from its early days, and the Nicene Creed was one of the fruits of the hard work and discussion that emerged from them. Others were the doctrines of the humanity and divinity of Jesus, as well as the formulation of the canon, or listing of the books that make up what Christians called the Old and New Testaments. I don't wish to gloss over the situation in such a shorthand way. Again, much has been written and said about this part of church history. In a short musing such as this podcast, we can only acknowledge that the Filioque Clause was controversial in its development and implementation. I would encourage you to investigate it further if you wish to do so. The main effect of the implementation of the Filioque Clause occurred in 1054, 
when the Roman Catholic Church excommunicated the Orthodox churches over their opposition and subsequent failure to accept the clause both as doctrine and as part of the Nicene Creed. The Orthodox churches responded by holding a council in Constantinople that passed a similar excommunication of the Roman Catholic Church. So we had the interesting situation of two powerful Christian traditions declaring each other's membership of the Church and any administration of the sacraments including the Eucharist, confession and absolution, weddings and ordinations of clergy termed to be invalid. In other words, they both divorced each other. This action has been called the Great Schism and has never been rescinded. It is still active today. Attempts have been made through the centuries to heal this rift. However, the practical outcome has been that both traditions have been wary of each other. For a long time, there was very little contact between them. When the Protestant Reformations occurred in the 16th century, the relationship between the Eastern and Western traditions was further strained. In many ways, if you are a member of the Roman Catholic Church or one of the Protestant denominations, the Orthodox churches have been mysterious and confusing. The Orthodox churches often feel the same about the other Christian churches. During the 20th century, things began to change, thanks in a great part to the advent of bilateral dialogues that have been a mainstay of the modern ecumenical movement. These discussions have resulted in a lot of the mystery and misunderstandings that have been held by members of both traditions being cleared up. A greater understanding has emerged, though, as can be expected. But not everything has been resolved. There are just as many Orthodox churches as there are Protestant churches, for example. Some have participated in ecumenical events and dialogues, while others haven't. That's okay. The benefits to both traditions have been very tangible and uplifting. I've enjoyed the liturgies and hospitality of the various Eastern and Oriental Orthodox churches that I've attended over the years. Local relationships have grown because people on both sides of the liturgical and doctrinal fence have talked, worshipped, celebrated and supported each other to the point where it has become second nature. This is also true of national and international relationships. Orthodox churches led by the Ecumenical Patriarch, based in Istanbul, Turkey, formerly Constantinople, have been in the forefront of the modern ecumenical movement since the beginning of the 20th century. So our understanding of each other has grown. This has included discussion about the Filioque Clause in the Nicene Creed. Both sides have offered their views, thoughts and prayers in order to find a way forward and ease the tensions caused by actions taken so long ago. Back in 1976, the Anglican Communion and the Greek Orthodox Church held a dialogue that made an important statement. It was presented to the Lambeth Conference that met in 1978. The Lambeth Conference is the international meeting of bishops from all parts of the Anglican Communion. It meets every 10 years. The next one is due to meet in 2022. COVID restrictions permitting. The statement recommended that the Filioque Clause not be included in the Nicene Creed because it was introduced without the authority of an ecumenical council and without due regard for Catholic consent. In this instance, the word Catholic means universal. 
As well, both churches regard the Nicene Creed as the public confession of the people of God in the Eucharist. The 1978 Lambeth Conference asked the provinces of the Anglican Communion to consider enacting this recommendation by formally omitting the filioque clause in their liturgies when reciting the Nicene Creed. This resolution was further strengthened by the 1988 Lambeth Conference. Discussions and recommendations to omit the filioque clause from the Nicene Creed had been occurring before the Lambeth recommendations. So while it wasn't new, it was good to see a worldwide church agreeing to take some action. Like a lot of things in the church, decisions to omit the filioque clause have been few and far between. That is not to say that it has been violently opposed. I like to think that it is one of those decisions that no one seems to have got round to organising, except in a few isolated cases. Yet I believe that it is important to pursue the issue. While we may not think that omitting three words from the Nicene Creed is a big deal, to some churches it is an outstanding hurt that needs to be resolved. Dialogues with the various Orthodox churches have produced the same agreement. The dialogue that began this matter for the Anglican Communion in 1976 was between the Communion and the Greek Orthodox Church. Dialogues between that church and the Coptic Orthodox Churches have also included a request to consider omitting the filioque clause within Anglican liturgies. So far, a couple of Anglican provinces have made a decision in line with the resolutions of the 1978 and 1988 Lambeth Conferences. The Anglican Church in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and the Anglican Church in Canada no longer have the filioque clause in their translations of the Nicene Creed within their liturgies. The Uniting Church in Australia has omitted the filioque as well. Other churches, such as the Methodist Church in Britain, have looked seriously at the proposal, but to date have not taken any action. I've often been asked when raising this topic about the stance of the Roman Catholic Church. While there has been no move to omit the filioque from the Nicene Creed within the Roman Catholic Mass liturgies, the Church has done something that, I believe, no other Church has offered to its people. When worshippers come to say the Creed in the Roman Catholic Mass, they are offered a choice between the Nicene Creed and the older and simpler Apostles' Creed. Parishes and dioceses throughout the Roman Catholic world then decide which creed they wish to use. It is interesting to find out that many parishes have opted to use the Apostles' Creed rather than the longer Nicene Creed. I don't think that it is because of the filioque and its history, though some diocesan notes on the creeds tell those seeking guidance that the Apostles' Creed is simpler and older, while the Nicene Creed came out of many controversies. It'll be interesting then to see how things go in relation to the future of the filioque clause. The discussion that occurs about it from time to time indicates that people are serious about making a change, especially if it improves relations between the Orthodox and Western traditions. The World Council of Churches published a paper titled Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Ecumenical Reflections on the Filioque Controversy back in 1981. While there hasn't been any further material coming out of the WCC since then, looking through the paper and engaging with different people reveals that the attitude of the WCC 
by encouraging churches to consider omitting the filioque remains unchanged. From its perspective, it is the individual churches that need to make a decision. Over time, this will occur, but if the past 30 or 40 years is any indication, it'll take a while before firm commitments are made one way or another. In the meantime, it is worth encouraging people to consider these three words that have caused so much controversy over the centuries. If omitting them means creating better relationships between the Orthodox and Western churches, the least we can do is give it very serious thought. I hope you have enjoyed this edition of Ecumenical Musings. You may not agree with everything I have said, but I hope it has given you food for thought on this topic. I'm Richard Tewton, and I look forward to sharing with you on another occasion.